Today we are talking about Pompey the Great, or Pompey Magnus. I know I missed my deadline to get this episode out, but I have just been a little exhausted with work, and I failed at getting everything done by the time I needed to have it done to get this episode out. So I apologize for that. I will try and be better in the future. The thing about the person we're talking about today is that he never learned how to fail, because he rarely did. He was a golden boy from the word go. His dad is an interesting figure in Roman history. He was called Pompey Strabo, and he was a novus homo. He worked his way up through the society, though not through totally moral methods. Kind of a Joseph P. Kennedy figure, someone who managed to earn a lot of money and gain a lot of accolades with a lot of respect from their soldiers, but not someone who was seen as really part of the mainstream elite. There were a lot of people who really didn't like him that much. Even in the soldiery, he was known for being very strict and a serious disciplinarian. But that didn't really apply to his son. His son was brought on campaign with his father from a fairly early age, and his son was dashing and popular and very much the JFK to Pompey Strabo's Joseph P. Kennedy. Once Pompey Strabo had died, his son inherited all of his army. So unlike Crassus, he never had to do any of that major recruiting for himself, at least at the beginning. But also, unlike Crassus, when he did have to do it, he was really, really good at it. He was every bit the lucky, fair-haired, fantastically gifted golden boy that he portrayed himself as. He often called himself Felix or Lucky in nicknames or in inscriptions. When Sulla started his civil war, Pompey sided with him, not out of any kind of family loyalty like Crassus, but because he thought Sulla had the best chance of winning. And Pompey was pretty correct, because Sulla came out victorious. And immediately after Sulla's victory, Pompey went in search of more glories. There were some Marian supporters who were left, and they had run off to Sicily in the hope that they could rebuild their power base there. And so Pompey got the Senate to put him in charge of taking down the rebels. This is one of the first instances of a trend that we will see. The idea that nothing is ever enough for Pompey. He is never satisfied. He took an army down to Sicily, and the Marians fled Sicily as soon as they heard he was coming. So he continued to march down south into Africa and keep harrying them. And he was relentless and incapable of taking no for an answer. He pursued a man named Carbo, who had continued the Marian regime with Marius's son, and Pompey showed him no quarter or relief. And he pursued his enemies so relentlessly that they called him the Teenage Butcher. He was 24 at the time. But it was effective. And while he struck fear into the hearts of his enemies, and while there were men who came back to Rome, but it was effective. And while he struck fear into the hearts of his enemies, there were also men back in Rome watching his reputation grow nervously. 
But neither of these groups could deny that he had almost completely removed the Marian threat. So he came back from his campaign in North Africa. And when he came in sight of Rome at the head of an army, he was ordered to disband. And he refused. Because you do not get a triumph if you disband your army. He told the Senate, and Sulla, who was still a dictator of the Senate at this time, that he wanted a triumph, like a petulant child refusing to go to bed before receiving a treat he had been promised. The Senate didn't necessarily think Pompey had earned a triumph, but it's clear that Sulla did not want to anger Pompey and anger the support that Pompey had. As much as Sulla had just been overwhelmingly victorious, he didn't want to restart these fights over some slight of honor. And so he started calling Pompey the Great, Pompey Magnus. Oh, Pompey the Great wants a triumph. Look, here he comes. He thinks he's so important. Well, give the little baby his bottle. Let's give this kid a triumph so we can move on with the real business of things. But Pompey the Great would keep and earn that name. Because pretty soon after Sicily, he would ask to be sent to Spain. He wanted to put down some rebels that were fighting in Spain. And to send him to Spain to give him the kind of power that he wanted to have, he would have to be sent with proconsular authority. And that was not something that the Romans bandied around lightly. Proconsul was like a position that was held by someone who used to be consul, who was older and in their 50s or 60s or 70s, and just sort of most of their achievements were behind them, but they got to be the elder statesman of the Roman Republic, to stick around and reinforce and do any of the great necessary things that still needed doing. And the idea that they would give this kid who was only 28 proconsular authority to go to Spain, was laughable. And yet, they gave it to him. He went to Spain, and he started fighting against the rebels. And he was successful pretty immediately, and as a result, those tribes pulled right back. They entered into a full guerrilla state, and Spain quagmired on Pompey. It quagmired to such a degree that he started looking longingly at what was going on in the east, where they were massing a force to go after Mithridates. He started maneuvering himself politically to get the position on that force, in spite of the fact that he still was not done in Spain. He wanted them to recall him to put him on the Mithridates expedition because it didn't seem like Spain was going to hold all that much glory. He was frustrated by the lack of progress with the guerrillas in general, and the truth was that the guerrillas were kind of frustrated at the position they'd been put in. So much so that one of the sub-commanders of the guerrilla force assassinated the general. They didn't like being put in this guerrilla defensive position. There wasn't quite the noble admiration that you see on some sides. These are still nomadic tribes who believe that they can stand up to Rome and hold their own. And so they fought back against Pompey, and he crushed them. It was the dumbest move they could have made to assassinate the smart man who was keeping them off Pompey's radar, and then to attack Pompey directly where he could use all of his force. 
He crushed these guerrilla fighters, the remains of this band, and then he goes back to Rome. And on his way back to Rome, he manages to run into the remaining slaves from the army that Crassus had just defeated. He mops up this small force, marches into Rome, takes equal credit for defeating the Third Servile War with Crassus, and takes all the credit for victory in Spain. And he just kind of lucks into this one time after another. This will become a theme. Like I said, he embraced the idea that he was lucky. And there are historians who almost want to dismiss much of what he did by just saying he was lucky. Like somehow the only reason why we know about him anymore is all of the luckiness that he had one time after another. There are times when that might be true, but there are other times where I don't think you can say that. So Pompey returns to Rome. He marches in a triumph for Spain. He is awarded an ovation with Crassus for defeating the rebels in the Third Servile War, something that Crassus was really frustrated by. And then he wanted to have his first consulship. At 36, four years before, you were allowed to, under the rules that Sulla had just set up, out of the hope of returning the Republic to some sort of normalcy. But none of that mattered to Pompey. He was just given things. And he was made consul with Crassus. It seems like Pompey hadn't really thought too much about Crassus. Crassus was six years older than him, but Crassus thought a lot about Pompey. Like staring at the popular football player and wondering why he got to have all the luck, Crassus was this reclusive, less charismatic, more demanding force. And Crassus had watched Pompey's rise and resented the success that Pompey had managed to achieve so easily. And that's not unfair, because the thing is, Pompey was not an especially good consul. He wasn't a bad guy, he just didn't have the stomach to play politics. He had no ability to hide his desires or point of view. So everyone could read what he wanted on his face, and then he just became someone that people maneuvered around. He had to have cheat sheets set up so he knew what to say during various ceremonies. And it seemed clear that he liked the kind of power you got while you were on campaign far more than this nuanced power, respect, frustration, hatred that you had to deal with when you were a politician in the thick of Rome. This was so much more Crassus's domain. So Pompey kind of ran out the clock on his consulship, and then once it was over he started looking around for another adventure. And his eyes landed on the Mediterranean. One of the consequences of Rome's conquest had been pirates. Rome had expanded so fast and so far that it had crushed all of the other organized states around the Mediterranean. With the consequence that the piracy, which had always dotted the sea, now had no one who was standing up to it. Since Rome was not paying especially close attention, the piracy was allowed to flourish and be highly distributed. And if someone made a point of trying to stop it, it would ebb for a bit, but flow right back the second that the apathetic Roman eye moved on to something else. 
and all of the decaying surrounding states had led to a sharp rise in the number of people who were willing to become pirates out of desperation. These people who didn't have lands that were protected anymore, who didn't have any steady source of income, who didn't have any way of getting the things that they needed, turned to piracy because it was the only option. So that was the situation when Pompey arrived. This quagmire of an issue, this problem, this impossible hurdle to overcome. And in six months, Pompey the Great cleared the Mediterranean of pirates. In six months. This is one of those moments where it can be difficult. If you're trying to make the argument that Pompey was only lucky, you basically have to come to the conclusion that the piracy throughout the Mediterranean was just a paper tiger, was nowhere near as bad as most of the Romans thought. But that's a tough argument to make. Partially because even if it was kind of a paper tiger, Pompey still managed to fix the problem permanently in six months. And the other reason why you can't really make the argument that it was all luck is because of that permanency. Pompey didn't fix the problem by killing every single pirate, by executing and then hanging up crosses with pirates on them all over the Mediterranean Sea like Crassus did for the Servile Wars. Pompey fixed the problem in what is almost a modern solution. It's a solution that has so much empathy, it's kind of astonishing. Pompey basically gave pirates land. He settled them. He gave them farms. He gave them places to eat. He gave them families and a way to buy into Roman culture that they did not have before. Pompey started setting up people who looked up to Pompey, who called him Pompey the Great without any source of irony because he had so effectively defeated them in battle and then treated them so kindly and then given them a place to live and raise children, and do the thing that they actually all wanted to do from the word go. And you start to see the edges of someone who might be truly, transcendently great here. Because everything I've just described was not Pompey's greatest success. After the... Mediterranean was cleared of pirates. Pompey finally got put in charge of the Third Mithridatic War. This was the war that he had had his eyes on earlier, that mass of forces that was gathering in the east to take on Mithridates once and for all. Mithridates had managed to limp along and still have a kingdom because he had bound a lot of the neighboring kings to him. They were on his side very closely, and there were a lot of people he was related to. He had a son-in-law on the throne in one of these kingdoms, and that son-in-law was currently sheltering him. And so here is another moment where Pompey might have just gotten lucky, because the second Pompey showed up, the force of his brand, the force of his name, was enough to get most of the kings in the neighboring kingdoms to not let Mithridates in. 
to give him no quarter, no shelter, to kick him out and make him face Pompey directly. Maybe this is luck, sort of, but at the same time, it is certainly true that the force of Pompey's name carried enough weight that people reacted to it. So whether almost everything to this point had just been Pompey being really lucky, at some point enough people believe in the luck that they're not going to question it, that they're going to turn things over a little more easily than they otherwise would have. Mithridates had chosen the moment that Spain was in full revolt to take on the challenge of expelling Rome from the east again. So this is when Pompey was over there focusing on that army. He had started to gather support and kick Romans out of their borders. And the Senate had not been able to do a ton about it. They just didn't have the attention or the energy to fight Mithridates right then. But once Pompey showed up, Mithridates did not have a lot of options left. He started retreating. And he started finding places where he could hide away because the kingdoms of his friends and neighbors weren't an option anymore. They started bowing and scraping to Pompey as he marched his massive and very efficient army through their lands. Mithridates retreated because he wanted to extend the Roman supply lines, but Pompey was such a good commander that he could ensure his own supply line continuity, that he could keep everything together to not have this massive unguarded flank. And he wound up completely defeating Mithridates. So Pompey is here in the east, just having defeated a generations-old enemy of Rome with a massive army. He didn't really have any intention of marching straight back to Rome. He just started marching his army around. And he changed everything. Borders were redrawn. Kings were taken off their throne and replaced with more friendly kings. He had clients. He had admirers. He turned himself into what is arguably the first Roman emperor. Most people say it starts with Augustus. Some people say it starts with Caesar. But if you look at the way the East treated Pompey here, the admiration, the fact that he had coins with his face printed on them, it's hard to say that he was angling at anything else. In a couple of years, Pompey is going to be the face of the senatorial clause, but the truth is, even if Pompey had won the civil war against Caesar, it's hard to see how much would have been different. Because out here in the Roman East, in Armenia, in Turkey, in Jordan, and the provinces of Israel, this area had its borders completely redrawn during Pompey's lifetime and had people put on the thrones who were friendly to Pompey. He backed a very specific client in Egypt. He made a good friend in Egypt. He made friends all across the Mediterranean. And he made money. We talked about how rich Crassus was last episode, Pompey was never quite as rich as Crassus, but Pompey made a lot of money. It was 
kind of insane. So in so many ways, Pompey managed to solidify Rome's control and also his own control over the eastern provinces. And then he returns to Rome. Like a conquering hero, he was hailed as the greatest Roman of that day. The man who had been a dashing young commander had gone on to have victory after victory after victory without ever seeming to break a sweat, and who now had created an eastern part of the empire that Rome could be proud of. Except, he wasn't really given the authority to do that. He just kind of did it. It's like making Louisiana purchase. There was nothing that said he could do this. So when he came back to Rome, he really wanted the Senate to rubber stamp everything he had done. Because it was good policy. The people who he had put in power were smart choices. The lines he had drawn, the provinces he had set up, it was all very well done. Like settling the pirates and giving them their own land. It was thoughtful and empathetic and forward-thinking. But the Senate had another motivation. Because like politics everywhere... The question is not just whether something is good. The question is whether something makes someone who's your rival look too good. Like the Republicans standing up to Obamacare, that was just basically a modification of what Mitt Romney had done in Massachusetts. Specifically, a man named Cato, or Cato the Younger, was one of the most important conservative senators, and he stood up to Pompey. And he said that he was not going to let Pompey rubber stamp all of these provinces that he had put together, that Pompey had exceeded his authority by doing this, because Cato did not want these strong, powerful, ambitious men like Crassus and Pompey to keep gaining all of this attention and success that they had been gaining. So enter Julius Caesar. Because right at this point, Crassus wants debt relief for some of the tax collectors. Pompey wants all of his work in the East to be okayed. And Caesar wants to be consul. So these three men came together at Caesar's proposal and created something that historians now call the First Triumvirate. One of the most effective ways that Caesar managed to seal this pact was with a marriage. Marriage in Rome was far more political than it is today. Caesar had a number of marriages over his lifetime, and he would get divorced in a way that seems almost modern, especially with the Middle Ages separating us from Rome. But as his political position changed, or as he formed new alliances, he would divorce his current wife and marry someone new, or be a bachelor for a bit, and it never was much of an issue in Rome. Often daughters who were... Often, daughters who were young when they were married didn't even leave their father's house, and they could be divorced from their marriage partners without too much of an issue because the marriage was just sort of a political and sometimes a financial tie. Woven through all of that was a new breed of woman. It was a new woman, as she was called. And this was a woman who had started to take control of her own sexuality, independent of whoever she happened to be married to. So tons of political marriages and women who don't feel especially 
embarrassed about promiscuity leads to something like the Victorian England, where there are button-down primrose marriages officially, but behind the curtain, everybody's going crazy. And all of this is what made Pompey's marriage so strange, because Caesar married his daughter Julia to Pompey. This was very sensible. It was a political marriage. It's the sort of thing you did. But unlike most political marriages, Pompey and Julia found a lot of love. So Caesar was about six years younger than Pompey, and Julia was about 30 years younger than Pompey. She's probably in her late teens, her early 20s at this point. But in spite of those facts, their marriage was notoriously loving. And being in love with your wife at that time was actually considered to be very feminine. So Pompey lavished affection on Julia, this younger, beautiful woman, and she apparently loved him back in a very real or soppy, sappy way. So while the Senate had managed to stand in the way of Pompey and Crassus and sometimes Caesar individually, with all three of them working together and with the loyalty of all of Pompey's army, there was not a lot that Cato the Younger could do. There was no way that he could stand up to them. They got everything that they wanted for the three triumvirs, and then Caesar marched off to Gaul to go fight in his Gallic Wars. Crassus and Pompey always had kind of a tough relationship. Pompey didn't think too much about Crassus, and Crassus resented Pompey. But now that they were in an alliance, they weren't going after each other officially. But Crassus still made sure that there was some stuff going on behind the scenes. Clodius Pulcher was a patrician, but he was not a scrupulous patrician. He was a patrician with an axe to grind. The notorious absence from the first triumvirate of the three most powerful people in Rome was Cicero. And Caesar had actually tried to recruit Cicero, which I guess would have made it the first quadumvirate. But Cicero, standing outside the triumvirate, had gravitated more towards Cato's orbit, opposing the triumvirate, which kind of infuriated Caesar who saw this as a betrayal in some way. And he looked around for a way to punish Cicero for this betrayal. And his eyes landed on Clodius. We'll talk about why Clodius doesn't like Cicero in a later episode. But Clodius had a plan, a plan to get back at Cicero. One of the most powerful offices in the Republic in spite of Sulla's attempts to neuter it, was still the tribune of the plebs. And this position had long been co-opted by powerful patricians. So even though it was supposed to be a check on patrician power and a supporter of plebeian power, it wound up being a source of patrician support more often than not. It was the Gracchi brothers using it for their own purposes that were kind of the first to make it actually 
a way to fight back against the patricians. But in spite of the fact that it had been co-opted, the position could still legally only be held by a plebeian. And Clodius Pulcher was a patrician. But adoption was a thing in Rome. And it's kind of like Japan now, where adult adoption is a way to pass on property or honor through official family ties that is really ceremonial, really set in stone, has a very high purpose. So it wasn't that uncommon to have adoption or even adult adoption. But the thing that was uncommon was for a plebeian to adopt a patrician. And what's more uncommon is for a plebeian who is younger than the patrician to adopt the patrician. All of this showcased how flimsy or meaningless the laws were, how much they were just a system to get around instead of something to be upheld. In spite of all of this, Caesar managed to push through Clodius's adoption by a younger plebeian. And Clodius became the tribune of the plebs, with the full support of the three most powerful people in Rome. And the game really changes here, because there's kind of a new world order. Clodius has no interest in doing things the way they have always been done. He was pulling from the Gracchus playbook, but not because he had any kind of higher moral purpose. He just wanted to get his programs. He wanted to get his own greatness on the table. He pushed through popular legislation and had attention-getting events, which really won over the average civilian. But he also pushed through laws that were designed to target specific people. He introduced a law that would exile anyone who had executed a Roman citizen without trial specifically to go after Cicero, who had done this. We mentioned in the past that the U.S. has a ban, a constitutional ban on ex post facto laws, where someone might target someone with a law against something that they'd done in the past, and the U.S. forbids it because it's just a way for people to punish others. But Rome didn't forbid it. So Clodius created a law that wound up exiling Cicero. He abolished any kind of limits on the collegia, which were professional organizations kind of akin to unions, although without the management worker distinction. These collegia were basically the professional facade of street gangs. They started out as like a woodworker's union, but very quickly it devolved into muscle that Clodius could use against any political enemies, and he used it effectively. Clodius was unrepentant in his attacks and his strategies for taking on opponents of his work. He created a small fiefdom of power by controlling what could happen and even what kind of laws could be debated in the Senate. And eventually, he even started going after Cato. Pompey did not want this. Caesar might have been willing to upend the world order in order to satisfy his own ego, but Pompey was already successful, and he didn't like the idea that Cicero was being attacked by this thug. So he criticized Clodius openly. And Clodius, who was really sensitive to this kind of attack, 
turned his ire on Pompey. Very quickly, Pompey went from being a popular and beloved citizen of Rome to being a source of mockery, to being the man against whom street violence was directed. He was pelted with rotten fruit, and he was hiding out in his home because he didn't feel comfortable and safe leaving it. His fortunes fell very quickly, and someone like Pompey, who is uncomfortable with dealing with this kind of political nuance, didn't take that well. In his own mind, it seems like he thought he was being attacked for doing the right thing. And he might not have known it at first, but certainly in the retrospective, it is clear that Clodius wasn't acting just out of spite for Pompey, but that he also had the support of Crassus, who still wanted to take Pompey down a peg. And it became a true low point for Pompey. He didn't know how to deal with negative emotions. He retreated and he hid. He ran from the city and created a little love nest with Julia, while Clodius continued to drag his name through the mud in Rome. It's really unclear how much Pompey understood that Crassus had a hand in all of this. As I said, Pompey didn't think of Crassus in an especially negative voice. He didn't think of Crassus much at all. Crassus was just kind of a featured player in the legacy of Pompey the Great. But during Pompey's retreat, the mood shifted back in Rome a bit. Clodius left office after two terms, and the people who wanted to recall Cicero finally got their chance. Clodius still had his gangs, but now he had a competitor. Because Pompey, after a bit of time, had managed to pull himself out of the Depression. And as a measure to combat Clodius's gangs, Pompey gave his support to one of the new tribunes named Milo, and he also gave permission for Milo to raise his own gangs, giving Milo's gangs more legitimacy than Clodius has had, at least in the eyes of Pompey supporters. But more gangs rarely leads to less violence. There was these escalating levels of street violence, and things were just getting bad, and it didn't seem like there was a clear way to get out of it. It became an obvious proxy war between Pompey and Crassus, with Pompey supporting Milo and Crassus still supporting Clodius. The courts and the streets blended, with both sides being accused of impropriety and having to dance around the realities of their own misdeeds. It took a bit for Caesar to understand the reality of what was going on from faraway Gaul. But he seems to have understood that his own involvement was necessary. He asked Pompey and Crassus to meet him in northern Italy, where he talked both of them back to a level of sanity. They reconfirmed their dedication to the triumvirate and promised to quit the proxy war. And they returned to Rome and had Clodius and Milo disband their gangs. It's hard to say what happened at that summit. There was no one who was recording anything, so we mostly understand the events there, what was said there, by the shape that events took afterwards. It's clear that Caesar was an excellent speaker and a very persuasive person. 
because Crassus and Pompey were back on reasonably good terms. They seemed pretty okay with each other. In fact, when Crassus was determined to go east and fight Parthia, Pompey actually kind of campaigned for him. The city was hostile and in full opposition of this war that they felt was unnecessary and tempting the gods, and Pompey asked them to stand aside and let Crassus through. But in spite of the fact that he seems to have supported Crassus in this final act, it seems unlikely that he was especially sad when he learned of Crassus's death. But that might be because he had another death to feel much more sad about. His wife, Julia, passed away in childbirth. And the child passed away as well. His tragedy sent ripples through Pompey's life. Sometimes with the distance of history, it's easy to feel like someone from a culture that is so old or so distant is almost a member of a different species. But in moments of pain, the things that you see are so recognizable that it's like no time at all separates us from ancient Rome. One of the most incredible groups of archaeological finds from ancient Rome are monuments to the dead, not monuments to the great and the ambitious, but the small tokens that were written by people experiencing the depths of grief. There are tombstones written with trite and generic words describing someone as a perfect wife and mother, mingled freely with such unique expressions of sadness over the beauty of someone's lost smile or the laughter that won't be heard again. Pompey would not have been unique over the despair of the death of his wife, but the unique position that Julia held between Pompey and Caesar meant that her death would have much bigger ramifications. Even if in that moment for Pompey, those ramifications were not a concern. Because in spite of all of the things that had happened, and in spite of the past positions he had taken, Cato was a very intelligent operator. He started to see that without Crassus and without Julia, there wasn't much that bound Caesar and Pompey together. And... There might not be enough room in Rome for someone of Pompey's status with someone of Caesar's status, as Caesar was returning from this massive, successful campaign in Gaul. Pompey had proved himself to be more sympathetic to the Republic between the two men. 
but Pompey had also proved himself to be more manipulable. Because while Caesar fought for his own glory, Pompey fought for love and admiration. And Cato's insight drove him to make common cause with Pompey against Caesar and the massive amount of support and success that he would be bringing back from Gaul. We're going to do a much longer section on the Civil War with Caesar when we get to the Caesar episode. But the important thing to understand from Pompey's point of view is that Pompey's manipulability is a double-edged sword. It helped Cato drive the wedge between him and Caesar, but if the stories are to be believed, it would probably be his ultimate downfall. Because eventually, at the end of the Civil War, Pompey and Caesar will meet at a battle called Pharsalus. And at this point in the war, Pompey has everything. Caesar's legions are starving. They are not well supplied. They have been fighting so much harder. There are fewer of them, and they are in dire straits. And Pompey has all of the wealth of the Senate, half of the Senate itself with him, and all of the belief and support from everyone that he's going to win the next day. In fact, they are very frustrated that it has taken him this long to win at all. A lot of the senators at the end of the Civil War are angry at Pompey for not being more aggressive and more active in taking on Caesar and instead seemingly holding back. Now, this was really smart military policy. Caesar was starving. And so a policy of light engagement on Pompey's front is the wise thing to do. A knockout, dragout battle could kind of go either way. The hand of fate is very messy. But Pompey started to take to heart what these senators were saying. They were accusing him of not wanting to attack his one-time friend, of holding back because he felt sympathetic to Caesar. And maybe there was a little bit of that. But really, really... At least with hindsight, we know it was good military policy to hold back. We know that Caesar could not have lasted for a couple more months if Pompey had not given him a fight. But Pompey listened to the senators he was with. And Pompey gave Caesar a fight. And Caesar destroyed him. They set out a banquet for Pompey, a victory banquet for him to eat when he came back from the battle. And that night, before he had had a chance to eat one simple morsel of it, he had to flee, and Caesar dined on Pompey's victory meal when he and his men had been close to starvation hours before. Caesar followed up his military victory over Pompey by chasing him down into the toe of Italy. Pompey hopped on a boat and started looking around for one of his friends, one of those clients that he had made such a close allegiance with during his campaigns in the East. And he remembered Egypt. 
he'd made a really close relationship with the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt. And he sailed his boat down to Egypt. The ruler he had put on the throne had since passed away, but his young son, his teenage son, was on the throne now. And Pompey fully expected to be warmly received in Egypt to rebuild his power and maybe strike out back against Caesar. But the people in Egypt understood that they had a very hard decision. Because if they let Pompey in, then there was a chance that they would be defeated by Caesar, taken over, and governed into submission. If they let Pompey in and he defeated Caesar, then Pompey would become the new ruler almost by default. He would usurp the throne even if only in name. But if they killed Pompey, well, maybe Caesar would show his gratitude, take Pompey's body and leave, do whatever he wanted to do. And so as Pompey's boat came up to the shore of Egypt, a guard of men who he was convinced were there to escort him stabbed him and slit his throat. They gave his pickled head to Julius Caesar. And they thoroughly misjudged how Caesar would react to that. Because Caesar had wanted to pardon Pompey and allow him to live out the rest of his days as a Roman citizen. Thank you all very much for your patience with this episode. It's one of the longer ones, and trying to make these ones good, these late Republicans we have so much good information on and so much characterization on, it's difficult, but I'm, I'm doing my best. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have a chance, please rate and review my podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or any other podcatcher of your choice. And I hope each of you gets to make some history this week.